0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 187. And it's the fifth episode in a mini series related to Richard K. Snagel. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little fatigued with the topic. Look, Richard K. Snagel is an absolutely intriguing individual. But we've really gone down the rabbit hole on him. And it really is time to get out of that rabbit hole and pivot back to where we said we were going right afterward. Which was to explore Lee Harvey Oswald and the CIA. But I did make some commitments to go over some additional elements related to Richard Case Nagel, and I want to keep them, at least some of them. And so today is sort of an omnibus final episode on Nagel. And in it, we will be covering three very specific things in not that much detail, but enough to actually tell the story about them. The first is a discussion about the Colonel Eroshkin incident. And the reason we're going to tell that story is it is perhaps a circumstance under which there was the first intersection of Lee Harvey Oswald and Richard Case Nagel. The second is a discussion about the Luma Hotel, which seems to be a gathering point for some of the things that went on in Mexico City. And the last incident that we'll discuss is the strange death of Sergeant Emmett E. Dugan, whom Nagel at some point later admitted to be involved with. Ultimately, the story is that Dugan was considered to be a defector in place, a man who had gone over to the other side. And as a result, there was a black ops mission to kidnap him and then to murder him. And Nagel was part of it. As I said, this is sort of an omnibus final episode on Richard Case Nagel. We could go on and on. There are so many topics that we could cover when it comes to Richard Case Nagel. And probably those of you who know much about this character would say, why didn't you cover this? Or why didn't you cover that? But at the end of the day, remember, we're on a wander here, and we have to get back to the main highway. We got to get to the Golden Gate. And so whatever it is that we didn't cover, it'll just have to wait. Nevertheless, I hope you have enjoyed this multi-part series on Nagel. And I can't wait to pivot to the next episode that covers Oswald and the CIA. Oh, and by the way, there are a few more of you who are now signing up for the JFK Enduring Secret YouTube channel. And I appreciate that. It's still a trickle, but hopefully we can continue the pace and get to the 1,000 subscriber goal that I've talked about in previous episodes. Of course, once again, I would like to give credit to Dick Russell's The Man Who Knew Too Much, as we draw much in the storytelling today from that book. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 187 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. You may know that after Japan was defeated at the end of World War II, there ensued a period of American occupation. And up until his ouster, which occurred during the Truman administration, General Douglas MacArthur would be the principal American in charge of American oversight. And during that time frame, he established sometime during the Korean War, the Japanese National Police Agency it was an organization that would stay very active until the late 1950s. One of its principal objectives was to track Soviet spies, spies that were well entrenched in Japan at the time. Richard K. Snagel would get to know a person inside of this agency quite well, and he would relay a story to Dick Russell and also to Bernard Fensterwald about an incident one day when a member of the foreign affairs section of the National Police Agency would tell Nagel about what Russell described as a curious episode. What was this episode? Well, the Japanese National Police Agency had observed a young American who was dressed in civilian clothes and was situated right outside of Tokyo's Soviet embassy. The Japanese police at first thought it might have been a member of the U.S. Army this man, whoever he was, was there with a friend. One of the first things that caught everyone's attention was that he was just walking back and forth in front of the iron gates that guard the embassy itself. And it wasn't long afterward that they were observed entering the Soviet embassy compound itself. And eventually, one of these two individuals would be identified as a Marine private from Atsugi. And you guessed it his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Were they sure it was Oswald? Well, Nagel would tell Bernard Fensterwald and Dick Russell that the Japanese actually had a picture of Oswald out in front of this Soviet embassy. But Nagel, so well-schooled in the ways of a spook, would caveat it by saying, you know, they would never admit it. Because then they would have to admit that they were taking pictures of the Soviet embassy and the people walking in and out of it. It seems reasonable, but what we know about Nagel is that there are a lot of pictures that seemingly were present that somehow are now nowhere to be found. As a little bit of a primer for some of us, let's remember that the KGB in Russia is a bit of a mixture between something akin to the FBI and the CIA combined, as we have it here. You see, the KGB functions both domestically and internationally. But another important Soviet spy and counterintelligence organization is a branch called the GRU, and its full name is in Russian too hard for me to pronounce, so I won't even try that. Officially, Colonel Eroshkin was the military attache at the Soviet embassy. In diplomatic terms, he was considered a resident. That is, he was part of the official diplomatic team, and therefore he had diplomatic immunity, if he ever got tangled up into something that was sticky, so to speak. The GRU is more the equivalent in this country of the Army G2 uh, and its CIC branch of counterintelligence. As far as military men in diplomatic embassies, that's very typical around the world. And even in our format, as you know, many CIA officers are actually formally listed as State Department employees inside of embassies. And that is so that they too would have official diplomatic immunity should they get themselves into something inappropriate or sticky while at the station in whatever foreign zone they're in. Nagel would later arrange to actually meet Oswald. And what did he find out about this meeting? Well, Oswald might have said that he was simply exchanging some coins and that he just ran into (laughs) Eroshkin. But we know that dog don't hunt. And the reason is that Nagel would go on to say that over some period of time, Oswald met with Eroshkin on more than one occasion. Russell never got any more out of Nagel on this, so it's not clear whether Nagel knew or didn't know what Oswald talked to the good colonel about. But if you're a betting man, you're probably going to bet it wasn't about coin collecting. Even though the whole story was relayed by Nagel well after the fact, one corroborating piece of evidence is the fact that Eroshkin's name actually shows up in one of Nagel's notebooks. That's right, one of those notebooks that was taken by the FBI during the El Paso Bank incident. Nagel's conclusions about all of this were interestingly simple. He did say that almost from the very beginning of these meetings, when Oswald first saw Eroshkin at the embassy, the Soviets suspected Oswald of being an agent of one of the U.S. intelligence services. Now, who told Nagel that is not clear to me, but he heard from the Soviets at some point, I guess. And you have to believe that that also plays into the idea of how the Soviets treated this young man when he would later defect to Russia. As we've already explained in a previous session, there was something more going on at that moment. The U.S. government was attempting at that moment to entice Eroshkin to defect. Yet, Eroshkin never did defect. And in fact, much later, in the 1990s, he would be interviewed by a Western journalist and reveal some interesting things. Eroshkin spoke Japanese, but not English. And through an interpreter, he would confirm that he was the military attache and that he had indeed been an officer with the GRU while stationed in Tokyo during that time frame, exactly as Nagel had described independently. And so this is another good example of something fairly esoteric that you would probably not know unless you were in some sort of intelligence or counterintelligence position such as Nagel's. Not surprisingly, this next answer to the journalist's question from Hiroshkin might be what you would expect from a man who had not left Russia, or perhaps never would. The journalist Robin Swan Summers would ask him straight up about defection. Apparently, looking astonished, the good colonel rejected the idea that he ever considered defecting from the Soviet Union. But then, interestingly enough, he told a story that during this exact time frame, a young man, probably in his mid-30s to early 40s, came to his house. Not the embassy, but his house. It was an American who showed up, and he did so with a pistol in hand. And then, oddly enough, he said to Eroshkin that he wanted to defect to the Soviet Union. This was incredibly odd at best circumstance and highly suspicious at the other end of the spectrum. And Eroshkin immediately suspected that it was a member of some foreign intelligence service, probably the Americans. And so he simply said, you have the wrong idea here. And he showed the man to the door. Yeroshkin would then punctuate this whole story by saying, I believe the same man did the same thing again in Europe at a later time. Dick Russell would then ask, after hearing this, the obvious question. Could this have been Nagel? And I myself might add by asking Could it have been Oswald? Nagel also hypothesizes that it might have been the character named Bob that was Nagel's CIA handler in Mexico City. And of course, Bob is a character that we've already introduced in a prior Nagel episode. Before long, Nagel himself would be solicited, as he tells the story, by another CIA contact, John Lampert, with Lampert asking Nagel to specifically get involved and participate in the Aroshkin Project. Nagel would even discuss some of this in his court of claims lawsuit against the government, which has been described in previous episodes, and in that lawsuit he would say that Nagel's role was to recruit into the CIA, a well-known Japanese author and linguist and a professor emeritus of political science at Tokyo University And, of course, this was Dr. Chikayo Fujisawa. All of this being done, while Nagel, of course, was in field operations intelligence. And why was this important, and how did it tie in exactly with the Eroshkin matter? And how did Nagel get picked to be part of what was next? Well, it turns out that Dr. Fujisawa is someone that Nagel already knew. You see, Fujisawa had been introduced to him in 1956 during one of Nagel's trips to Japan. And for whatever reason, after being introduced to him, Nagel maintained a relatively close relationship, particularly because of both men's interest in language and the fact that Fujisawa was an accomplished linguist. In fact, as I have mentioned before, Fujisawa actually spoke five other languages as well as English and Japanese, according to Nagel. Okay, so Nagel knows Fujisawa, but still, how does this all connect? Well, it turns out that Fujisawa lived in the same neighborhood in Tokyo as Eroshkin. CIC or CIA figured this close proximity out, and as a result, they were hoping that because Fujisawa lived in the same neighborhood, that he could be persuaded to help them bump into Eroshkin and make contact. But there was more to it than just that. You see, Fujisawa was probably already connected in some way with some of the machinations that were going on at the Soviet embassy. You see, Fujisawa was allegedly going in and out of the Soviet embassy, ostensibly to finalize an agreement for a cultural exchange program between Japan and the USSR. And regardless of whether that was the true reason or not for Fujisawa's visits to the embassy, they knew that Fujisawa was, on a regular basis, in close proximity to Eroshkin. And at the end of the day, and at that moment, they were still trying to figure out exactly who Eroshkin was, what he knew, and what he was doing there in the Tokyo embassy. And as for Oswald, it was never definitively determined whether he was part of the Eroshkin project conducted by CIA and Army counterintelligence or not or whether Oswald was just headed into the Soviet embassy on multiple occasions to satisfy his own objectives. There's all sorts of speculation around all of this. And as I said in previous episodes, Oswald may have been used as a homosexual dangle to try and entice Eroshkin in that way. But no real hard evidence exists of that. Then, just when you think it might be a little too arcane to figure this all out, another clue comes along. Nagel wasn't the only one getting to know the good professor, and Oswald was not going to the embassy just to see Eroshkin either. You see, Oswald himself also had a relationship with Fujisawa, or at least met him, according to Nagel. And Fujisawa himself spoke fluent English and excellent Russian. There is not a whole lot more to tell of this story because in reality, and before you know it, two Tokyo police officials told Nagel to beware of what was really going on. One was a Dr. Masui, who was chief of the crime prevention section of the National Police Agency, and the other was a personal friend of Nagel's, Jun Murai, who was head of the Tohoku Regional Police Bureau and formerly the director of the Cabinet Research Office, which is Japan's equivalent of the CIA, which was, by the way, established with American approval in 1952. Murai would warn Nagel, basically saying that the Japanese had penetrated the Eroshkin Project and believed that it entailed something unlawful. Something so unlawful that it might further strain the already tense relations that existed at the time, between Japan and the USSR. It was a period of transition in Japan. It was post-World War II, and Japan was regaining its true internal autonomy some 10 to 15 years after the war's end, getting stronger and requiring less internal intervention by the Americans, and tolerating less as well. And certainly by that point in time, the Japanese government was less tolerant of indiscretions by the U.S. spy community that, if exposed, would be seen as clearly illegal under the then-existing laws of Japan. Well, with all this being said, Nagel officially recused himself from the Eroshkin Project on January 10, 1958, and Nagel's objective to recruit Fujisawa was essentially ended. Later, Nagel would come to believe that American intelligence and counterintelligence had plans to even potentially kidnap Eroshkin or Fujisawa, or use blackmail or other illegal activities during the course of this mission. And with some level of hindsight perspective, Nagel would later say he would never have participated in the Eroshkin project in the first place had he thought those kind of tactics were going to be employed in that circumstance. Nagel would later come to believe in his own mind and feel very certain about the idea that Dr. Fujisawa was a Soviet agent himself. And as for Oswald, the real question is whether or not the dates of his subsequent meetings with Eroshkin were before or after the CIA project was scuttled. If those meetings came before then he may very well have been part of the CIA effort to recruit these individuals. If they came after, it might very well point to the idea that Oswald was being utilized by Soviet intelligence, either wittingly or unwittingly. And one more sad footnote about all of this. Dick Russell would never get Nagel, or perhaps Nagel never knew, but in any case, there would never be a more specific assertion about the dates related to Oswald's visits. For us as jurors, it's just one more important thing to ponder. So I will say it carefully one more time. If Nagel was correct and Oswald met with Eroshkin on multiple occasions, and if those meetings took place prior to the scuttling of the CIA, CIC, Eroshkin project, then it's a good bet that Oswald was working for American intelligence at that moment. On the other side of the coin, it might be an equally good bet that if the dates of those meetings with Eroshkin were after the project was scuttled, then Oswald either wittingly or unwittingly was working for the other side, working for Soviet intelligence. Folks, you just can't write this stuff. Many of you may recall the movie Casablanca. It's considered one of the most popular classic movies of all time. Filled with intrigue, it's, of course, filmed in Casablanca, which was in French Morocco at the time. And the setting was during World War II, at the crossroads of the Nazis in Vichy, France, which was, to say the least, an uncomfortable coexistence. Most of the important scenes in the movie take place in Rick's cafe. Characters abound. Letters of transit carried surreptitiously. Spies everywhere, everyone listening. Danger in the air. If the wrong conversation was heard by the wrong ears. And, as portrayed in the movie, the famous fictitious nightclub was owned by the character played by Humphrey Bogart. He was, of course, Rick. The story I am about to tell you includes its own mini version of Rick's Cafe, only this time it's real, no fiction, and the name of the place is the Hotel Luma in Mexico City. The Hotel Luma was off the beaten path, a quieter setting than some of the larger, higher-profile hotels, a place you could come and enjoy a nice drink at the bar without someone looking over your shoulder. And perhaps it didn't feel like you were being followed or that what you said would be overheard by the wrong ears. And that is what many of the characters thought in the summer of 1963. Well, our little Hotel Luma had its own brand of espionage and intrigue. Like Casablanca, the hotel had its own notable manager, and his name was Warren Brogley. He was Swiss, and like so many of the Swiss, he was fluent in multiple languages. Martha Greenstein would note that Broglie spoke four languages. For a period of about three months later in 1962, between August and October, both Greenstein and Nagel would make the Hotel Luma their residence in Mexico. It was natural during that time frame that Greenstein and Nagel would meet at the bar in the Hotel Luma, and that they did, and they became friends. And Greenstein would become a trusted confidant of Nagel, receiving and making a series of letters that later, as this epic story unfolded, would become part of the important historical communications that helped to tell the story of Richard Case Nagel. Why was the Luma so full of this intrigue? Well, first of all, the Cuban embassy in Mexico used it as a principal place to put up individuals who were coming to Mexico to conduct official business with the Cuban embassy there. Likewise, the Hotel Luma was used by some Eastern European countries in much the same way, and particularly the Czech government. In those days, the Czechs were considered a satellite of the Soviet Union. And why that is important is the obvious reason, because Czechoslovakia was the cut-out country of sorts when the Cuban government wanted to connect with the United States. And that was particularly the case as things go with the Czech and American diplomatic delegations in Mexico City. According to Philip Agee, who was an ex-CIA official, the Czechs in Mexico City maintained a smaller embassy of about eight individuals, but the majority of them, according to Agee, were considered to be spies from the Czech spy network. As you can imagine, it didn't take long until the FBI in Mexico City, and also the CIA, took an interest in the Hotel Luma. In later years, Dick Russell would track down Warren Brogley, who had retired to Florida. Brogley would recall his social get-togethers with Wynn Scott, who was the head man at the CIA in Mexico City. It got to the point where they were chummy enough that Brogley was giving the CIA and the U.S. Embassy regular updates of the comings and the goings that were taking place at the Hotel Luma. But then something happened, and the Cubans stopped coming. Could they now be informed that Brogley was informing the Americans? Perhaps. Well, it turns out that Brogley's bartender and relief head waiter at the Luma was Franz Wehoff. Franz had served in the German Merchant Marines during World War II, and somehow afterward, by 1952, he had made his way to Mexico after the war. He never became a Mexican citizen, but for the next decade or so, he would work at the Hotel Luma. He was, of course, the bartender who got Nagel and Greenstein and so many others, their drinks every night. And like all bartenders, he saw a lot And he heard most everything. And of course, we all know that once you get to the bar and have a few drinks, lips become looser. Yes, indeed, Franz heard a lot and knew a lot. Nagel would develop quite a rapport with Franz Weyhoff. And ultimately, in the end, Nagel would conclude that Weyhoff was Czech intelligence. Dick Russell himself says it is not clear, but... There is a reasonable chance that Weyhoff sought to recruit Nagel into Czech intelligence, and that was the famous incident that Nagel articulated earlier in our episodes. And also recall from that earlier episode how Nagel recounts that his CIA officer-slash-handler, Bob, instructed him to take the bait offered by a foreign government. Well, this incident with Franz Weyhoff, may very well have been it. Shortly before departing Mexico, in October of nineteen sixty two, Nagel had made an arrangement with Weyhoff, and Weyhoff sent him to a weapons specialist, where Nagel has said that he obtained a twenty two caliber revolver equipped with a welded on silencer. And the original target, Nagel added, for use of this weapon, was a well known Cuban exile in Miami named Rolando Masferrer. Remember that name? It's a rather famous one that probably deserves his own episode. If you want, you can go back to one of our original Cuba episodes and you'll hear more about this butcher. There were lots of characters at the Hotel Luma, and one that sticks out is a man named Robert Clayton Buick. He himself resided for a period of time at the Hotel Luma. Buick was... More than a bit of a character, he was an American who had become a professional bullfighter in Mexico City. Cape and all. In 1969, a writer from Upland, California, got interested in the Kennedy assassination. His name was Ricard von Kleist. Von Kleist would leave a mysterious phone call and write a letter to Richard Case Nagel's attorney, Bernard Fensterwald. In that letter, he would tell a fantastic story. Von Kleist would describe a meeting that went on at the Hotel Luma in July 1963. This meeting was attended by Alex Seidel, otherwise known as Lee Harvey Oswald, a female attorney who was a well-known communist in Los Angeles, and the hotel head waiter described in the letter as Friddy, but whose true name was, of course, Franz Wehoff. Wehoff was described as also owning a launch, which Buick believed to be shuttling between Mexico and Cuba. I assume that means some sort of boat that was going back and forth. The letter would go on to state that von Kleist also believed Richard Case Nagel to be involved in the meeting, and von Kleist described Nagel as a former captain in the U.S. Army who was associated with a counterintelligence in Japan in 1959, or perhaps 57 or 58. You see, these are only the kind of facts that you would know if you had more intimate knowledge of things and people. And it seems like von Kleist did. In that same letter, von Kleist mentioned Robert Buick as someone who could shed additional light on this meeting. Well, as you might expect, Fensterwald was quite intrigued by this letter from von Kleist, and he made it a point to seek out Robert Clayton Buick and try to learn more about what happened at that meeting and generally what these goings-on were all about. The only trouble was Buick was in the middle of a 20-year sentence, which he was now serving at the McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington State. It seems as if the good bullfighter had turned to bank robbery. Isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> that sounds familiar and quite similar to the Nagel story. Well, hold on to your hat because it's going to get a little crazier in just a minute. Oh, and if you're wondering who the female attorney from Los Angeles was, well, Russell thought that it might be Harriet Buhai. Fensterwall did what attorneys do. He temporarily became Buick's lawyer, and of course, that gave him privilege. And, of course, Buick would then tell him more. Buick was indeed corresponding with von Kleist, and they had become some version of friends, playing chess through the mail during Buick's incarceration. (laughs) Buick, by the way, at one time, was on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. He would later adjudicate himself and become a real estate agent in Southern California. (laughs) Only in America, folks. And I guess Mexico, too. It was clear that Buick knew a great deal about the goings-on at the Hotel Luma. Once the discussions commenced with Buick, Fensterwald memorialized them in a memo. And he quoted Buick as saying, I happened to stumble on meetings and accidental things, and I became extremely interested at the time. Something too big for me to handle was in the making. In the summer of 1963, Heidel, that is, Oswald's alias, was in Mexico, and he was there before September 1963. Heidel went once by bus and once by plane. Heidel was mixed up in it, to the hilt. The man was used as a pawn all the way through. Strong words by Buick. Buick would give further details indicating that Oswald had stayed in a dingy flea bag hotel, but then he also frequented the Hotel Luma. Buick also knew Nagel, and he would make quite a startling revelation about the rest of the trip that was never completed after Nagel was picked up in El Paso for the bank robbery. Buick was at the Hotel Luma when all of that was happening, and he noted that One of the meetings of these small groups took place at the Hotel Luma shortly after Nagel's bank incident. And Buick noted that he would have expected Nagel to be en route to Mexico for this meeting. Buick believed that Nagel was at the border trying to make up his mind whether to go south or not. And that he didn't want to go back to that meeting in Mexico City. Buick would go on to state that sometime that summer he was approached by agents of the U.S. government, men that he said at the time he could still identify by sight, and men that wanted Buick to infiltrate and report on what was happening with this group. His introduction to these U.S. government officials was something right out of a spy novel. One night in the summer of 1963, he was out late, and he was drinking at a nearby bar named the La Ronda. Around 2.30 in the morning, he decided to head home, and he headed out to his car, an emerald green Cadillac convertible. outfitting. fitting. But pretty quickly, he sensed that he was being followed, so he actually passed up his car and kept walking. And then he made a quick turn down the street and into a deep alcove. As was typical of the day, in Mexico, this macho man was packing heat. He had a three hundred fifty seven Magnum under the seat of his car, but on his person, at the time, he carried a thirty eight Derringer. Pearl handles and all, just like the one that General Patton used. So he hid in the alcove, and they would pass him. And as one of the mystery men approaches, out from the shadows comes Buick to place the gun as Temple. Speaking to these two in Spanish and then quickly finding out they didn't speak any Spanish at all, but started speaking to him in English. One of them would say, I can't understand. So in English, Buick would quickly get to the point and say, what the fuck do you guys want? And then he would tell them both to lay their hands straight down or he would blow the guy's brains out. At that moment, they flashed their U.S. government IDs and they told Nagel they just wanted to talk to him. After things calmed down, one thing led to another and they said to him, you're there at the hotel three or four nights a week, sometimes for lunch during the day. And they wanted information. They wanted to know who was frequenting the place, what their names were, and if there was any type of conversation other than the ordinary stuff. Buick bought in and became an informant for the CIA, and he agreed to meet the two agents periodically in Mexico City in the city's Giribaldi Park. The agents were clear that they did not want anything written down. The updates were to be all verbal. And as he began paying more attention under this new arrangement, while frequenting the Hotel Luma, he would zero in on Franz Weyhoff, and he would notice the very tight relationship that Wehoff had with the manager there, Warren Brogley. One thing that struck him was that the two of those men would be in very intense conversations quite often. And of course, he would also see Richard Nagel there. And not long after that, he would see Oswald. With Oswald engaging on one initial discussion with him, to some extent, It was a conversation with Oswald inquiring about how to become a bullfighter. And as Buick describes it, Oswald was cocky. And one of the first things that struck Buick was that on the first occasion of their meeting, Oswald introduced himself as Alex Idell, But on the second occasion, he introduced himself using another name. Buick called him out on it. And Oswald just clammed up, and from there on out, refused to talk to him after that. Buick would go on to say that Oswald wasn't in the bar very long on either occasion when he saw him. But there were moments where Oswald, Wehoff, and brogley all three men, were talking together. And then were completely out of sight. They never all left together, Buick would say, or come back together. But then, all of a sudden, as he describes it, one would come in, and then five minutes would pass, and another shows up, and then ten minutes later, the third comes back into the bar. Buick had no idea what that meant. Perhaps they were meeting in one of the vacant motel rooms. But as he said, who knows? Interestingly enough, they would be talking to some Cubans, too, although Buick wasn't sure as to whether they were actually Cubans. He thought it was possible that they could have been Puerto Rican or from one of the other adjacent Caribbean islands. But what he said next is the bigger thing. Buey claimed that he actually did overhear portions of conversations in the Luma Bar concerning an assassination attempt against President Kennedy. What he heard, he told the two government officials in the park. Those comments may not have been as overt as I am implying, Buick would state that it wasn't so much what he heard at one specific moment. You understand it wasn't something that was directly stated, but more implied. It was only in retrospect for Buick that it would all come together. (laughs) Now, imagine that, only in retrospect. Well, Dick Russell never got Buick to place Nagel and Oswald together at the Luma Bar at the same time. But... In the 1993 book, Riding the Tiger's Back, that author did. And apparently, Buick would say more, indicating that Alex had allegedly told Buick he was on his way to Cuba. And when asked how he was going to get there, Alex had hinted it would be by sea. Hmm. Does that now line up with Franz's little shuttle service that I just mentioned? Thought you would catch that one if you weren't eating a sandwich. Well, Buick also recalled this Alex talking about how President Kennedy would pay for the Bay of Pigs invasion, even discussing assassination as an effective tool. When Buick told this information to his two CIA contacts in the park and then asked what he should do next, they were very clear. And their answer was, you should do nothing. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Obviously, they didn't take care of anything. Wouldn't you just like to know who those two CIA agents were? I would. There's one final twist to this story, as bizarre as it already is. After Buick was apprehended in Texas on March 26, 1966, for his bank robbery spree, He should have gone directly to California under the extradition agreement. That is where the robberies occurred. And Buick recalls that the state of California wanted him flown right out from Texas, right away, as Buick was charged with 22 counts of bank robbery there. Yet the authorities didn't do that. Instead, they took him to El Paso. And lo and behold, he would soon be in the same jail cell as Richard Case Nagel. It wouldn't take long before Nagel and Buick recognized each other. Soon they would be talking about Mexico and the Luma Hotel and the distaste that both of them had for the bartender, Franz Wehoff. Buick would conjecture that Nagel's distaste emanated from differences between the two men in whatever it was they were planning in that group. Russell would ask Buick whether he thought that the authorities deliberately put the two men in the same jail cell together in order to see what they might say to each other. Nagel was concerned from the very beginning that the cell was bugged, and Buick agreed right away with Russell's surmise. He would say, yeah, there is no doubt about it. That's what they did. Well, I don't know whether that dog hunts or not, but I will tell you one thing, folks, you just can't write this stuff. Sometimes, not even super-secret black ops can escape the newspaper. Appearing in the New York Times on March 15, 1958, was an article on the death of Sergeant Emmett Dugan. The small little headline read, Two hunted in Tokyo in death of a GI. The Tokyo police are reported to be searching for an unidentified Chinese and a Caucasian foreigner in connection with a suspected murder of a United States Army sergeant assigned to intelligence work. A body in civilian clothes found floating in Tokyo Bay Wednesday was identified this morning as that of Marine Sergeant Emmett E. Dugan, 39 years old. He had been missing from his intelligence unit in Yokohama, 25 miles south of Tokyo, since February 4th. An examination indicated the man had been dead two weeks. An autopsy conducted by United States Army surgeons yesterday suggested he had died before he was thrown into the water. Except for a bruise on the forehead, his body bore no marks of external injury, but there was no seawater in his lungs, as there would have been had he died of drowning. Sergeant Dugan's wife returned to the United States last Monday by military aircraft. An Army spokesman said he had no, and I quote, definite knowledge that the sergeant was engaged in, and I quote, investigative activity at time of his death. He could have been a victim of robbery, he added. Well, he's just saying. We have to thank the records that got generated as a result of Nagel's court case that was filed in the Court of Claims related to his disability claim, because as part of that claim, He included information regarding certain aspects of his field operations intelligence work. That's right, his engagement in black ops, if you can believe it. Yes, in that claim, Nagel wrote that in February 1958, he had personally, and I quote, witnessed the abduction and execution of a U.S. Army intelligence agent, Master Sergeant Emmett E. Dugan, by other agents because he was suspected of harboring intentions to defect to the Chinese communists. Nagel apparently identified Dugan as an agent handler for field operations intelligence, saying that Dugan had been assigned to work with a Chinese informant from Hong Kong. Dugan was last seen on February 4, 1958, with his wife Maud at the Osaka Hotel in downtown Tokyo. That night, Dugan would simply leave and tell his wife that he had things to take care of. Oddly enough, he handed her his insurance policies and said to her, if I don't return, you'll need these. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but doesn't that sound like the actions of a man who's walking into a dangerous situation? As you heard in the New York Times article that I just read, He was not a victim of drowning. And later, Army investigators would not rule out the idea that he might have been poisoned. Some time passed, and the case was closed quietly by the Army investigators, with no further insight into what happened. Why this case may be so important to the Nagel story is that Professor Fujisawa, who we have talked about in past episodes that cover Richard Case Nagel. Well, he was a suspected communist and foreign agent, this Fujisawa, and he somehow got wind of Nagel's involvement in Dugan's murder. And as a result, after Nagel was back in the States, Professor Fujisawa would pursue him and perhaps use this very knowledge as leverage to try to recruit him in a double agent role once again. To sum it up, Nagel had a very typical response that you might expect from a member of the clandestine community. Dick Russell would come across something in Nagel's correspondence where Nagel had mentioned Dugan, and Nagel then said this about the situation. What else was the Army to do with one of its intelligence agents who was suspected of having been doubled? Try him by a general court-martial <laughs> where the truth would have surfaced, and heads would have rolled, and it then would have leaked out, that we were engaged in clandestine activities which flagrantly violated the provisions of the treaty between Japan and the United States. This fact alone could have proved somewhat rather embarrassing to all concerned. Well, there you have it. We don't have much more than that related to the story of Emmett E. Dugan. But where it seems to point is that Nagel was involved as part of his employ in the Army Field Operations Intelligence Unit at the time. And he happened to be involved at least tangentially in the kidnapping and the murder of this other black ops participant, E. Dugan. And that later his involvement may have been used as leverage to turn him once again to a functioning double agent. Thank you for listening to episode 187 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.